History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, Margaret Cousins of Ireland and India. So she's always sort of spreading the message of what's happening in India and speaking on behalf of communities in places where she has access, sometimes as an Irish woman and sometimes representing India. Sinead McCool on the extraordinary life of the suffragette and educator and how she brought Irish experience to Indian women's campaigns for political and social freedom. Also, a history of Ireland's military archives. I wanted to tell this story because what I noticed as soon as I got to the military archives was first of all the passion of the people involved who drove this thing forward but also how far back that history went and it goes all the way back to 1924. Daniel Aotis on the individuals who preserved Ireland's military records and how they transformed our understanding of the revolutionary period. Margaret Cousins was one of the most energetic leaders of the Irish women's suffrage movement, a co-founder of the Irish Women's Franchise League with Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. She tirelessly campaigned for those who sought participation in political, economic and social life, first in Ireland and then in India. Her work in India, where she lived for 40 years, is perhaps not as well known in this country. A short biographical film called Margaret Cousins of Ireland and India tells the story, pretty much in her own words, of a lifelong pursuit of emancipation, education and empowerment for women and for girls. You can watch it online now at manaw100.ie. And I'm joined by Sinead McCool, curator of manaw100.ie, which is part of the Decade of Centenaries programme. Welcome back to the programme, uh, to our programme, Sinead. Thank you, Miles. Lovely um, to be here. Margaret Cousins, Greta Cousins, as she would have been uh, probably better known in Ireland, she was quite at home herself, she says, with politics from a young age. Why was that? Well, she's a really interesting character, as you know, and I, I, I hear, you know, the term Greta Cousins, which people will be familiar with, was how she was known to family and friends and in Ireland. But later on in, in India, she was better known formally as, as Margaret E. Cousins. So she was born in Roscommon and when, from an early age as the eldest girl of 14 children, her father encouraged her with her reading by asking her to read to him aloud from the newspapers of the day. And he was a petty sessions clerk and so interested in the, in the happenings that were going on. Of course, this is the period of the land war, you know, coercion acts, home rule bills, as she said herself. In her, her own writings, she talks about being completely at home in politics from the age of 10. So at a fairly early age, she leaves Boyle in, in Roscommon. Mm-hmm. She comes to Dublin. She meets a man called James Cousins. Tell us about James Cousins. Well, she's very interesting and we're very fortunate to have their what they call their geography, which is a lovely way of describing the, the way that they jointly wrote the book of their lives. And one of the things that's most interesting about it is the sort of the, the modern marriage that they had in that they decided they wouldn't have children, that they would work for others. And she wasn't originally attracted to James because he was an accountant and it was through their love of the arts. So he was an accountant who was a playwright and a poet and it was through the poetry and the literary lives that they were drawn together. And, I mean, he he completely transformed her or she was transforming when she met him. She had this very interesting quote about how when she came to Dublin to study music, she was at the uh, Royal Irish Academy of Music, but studying for a degree um, through the Royal University, that she was introduced to a new life. And she said she 
she broke her shell from the inside. I think that's a really interesting idea. In a, so she was open to what he was introducing mm. her to. Very early on, they, they joined together the Theosophical Society in, in Dublin, which had, you know, had a place where they met at Three Eli Place, a group of like-minded people. So she began to read widely and began to read really about India at that early stage. And of course, the headquarters was in India. Um, the music we will we'll come back to mm-hmm. um, a, a little bit later. But uh, th- as you said, they started to do things in common. One of the things, uh, I'm, you know, I'm assuming that uh, James Cousins agreed essentially to become a feminist, uh, but she agreed <laughs> to become a vegetarian. Yeah, and that was on the wedding day, which I thought was uh, sort of interesting because obviously she couldn't eat what was being provided and went away from her own wedding feast hungry. So it's a great read, the book, and we've we've taken a lot of the her direct quotations from her writing. I mean, unusually, she was writing about her life. Uh, between just her political writing, she also writes personally. So you've got this wonderful colour of the person as she sort of comments on what had gone on in, in their lives, lives together. And, and vegetarian, and it was at a vegetarian association meeting in London that she ha- happened upon another meeting in the, the same location. And that's how she inv- came involved in the Women's Council and then came back and was involved with Hannah G. Skeffington, of course, in setting up the Irish Women's Franchise League. So she was very open to uh, new ideas and new beliefs. I mean, very interesting character. In terms of her work with the Irish Women's Franchise League, like a number of her contemporaries, uh, she spent a certain amount of time in what we would describe as choky. She, 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 was, she was arrested a couple the times and she was jailed. Yes. And, and you know, when people think about those uh, suffrage cartoons and all of that, or the, the people that, you know, went to jail for the cause, I mean, she's she's one of them. I mean, she's breaking the windows and she talks about, you know, that the sound of the breaking windows reverberated throughout the world, that, that they were talking about, you know, breaking the system. And, you know, she talks about the spirit of women being epic and something that we would sort of associate the wording even today. And so what you find when you look at the work related to her was she seemed to be somebody who was able to network in the true sense. You know, we use all those terms today, like, you know, influencer and networking and all of that. And and she was doing it at such a high level from such a young age. And did she, when she was in jail, when she was in, she was in Mount Joy, she was in Tullamore, did she go on hunger strike? Because a number of, uh, of, of suffragists then did, Irish suffragists and obviously British as well. Yes, she did. And, and, you know, she said, you know, joining the long line of, you know, of patriots by, by her time in prison. In Hannah Sheehy Skeffington's collection in the National Library of Ireland, you know, you've got the censored letters coming from Tullamore Prison. And so we've had a lovely um, sort of layering of the visuals within the film as well, where we've, where we've possibly used original archive and sourced it because everything that we're doing on Manol100.ie is to sort of, you know, to be used by people so that every time that you find something that you can have another jumping off point for more more research in it. Now, she's really well known. And I mean, we have Jyoti Atawal, who's actually in the film, who's, who's writing a biography of her, you know, in, based in India. And there is more to come on Margaret Cousins. But this, I hope, will be of, of, of you know, general interest and also specialist interest. One of the things that brought her to India, you've already adverted to it, was mm-hmm. theosophy. Mm-hmm. She became a theosophist. What is theosophy? In terms of the organisation, it was a form of religion. It was based in spiritualism. It was Annie Besant, actually, who who organised this religion and it was for the betterment of others. So it was looking for what she had worked for in Ireland and what the the organisation became involved in was education. So there were schools and there was a college. What they were doing is is going through the world, 
you know, spreading the beliefs, but also, um, you know, gathering people together. So Annie Besant, for example, became involved in Indian nationalism, became involved in this empowerment of women, you know, worked towards putting together um, the groups that Margaret then used to, she wrote the first in 1917, the first list of women's um, rights for their own suffrage. So while they're, they're theosophists and they're, she's working with Annie Besant in the, in the things that Annie Besant is interested in, in many ways in the film we try to sort of separate her out and make sure that we give her voice through what she was doing. So she works between the Theosophical Society and her own work in the same direction. Now, in 1918, Mm. some of what she was looking for was realised in that general election in December of 1918, when, as you put it in the film, some women were allowed to vote. Explain some women to be. When they got the vote in 1918, women had to be either over the age of 30... They had to be university educated. So she would have qualified on both of those counts or have had been on a a rates list. So Mm. they had property qualifications, as they were described. So, yeah, she would have been able to vote. But, of course, she didn't cast her vote because, of course, by then they were in in India. India. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was she when she went? First of all, she was very much involved in, I suppose she was all her life, but she was principally involved in education, wasn't she? Yeah. And that was and James had gone over to to run a Theosophical College. So he had got the principal role and then she began to um, teach school. So she was running a school. And what was interesting in those early stages, you know, she never was quite content to, to do what was the day job. She she immediately started to, you know, to network within the community and try and solve social issues as best she could. And she used her her sort of Irish, so, you know, hospitality and ability to network. And so she started at first in the school, but then very quickly had spread out. And within five years which is which is incredible when you think about you know sort of integration and into a community she was up, she was asked to join the Indian Women's University which had been established in in Pune as it was then or Pune as it is known now and and she was part of their senate so so very quickly she's seen as somebody who who is able to sort of command a sort of a leadership position um, and she takes everything on as, as it's presented to her. She, she seemed to be very confident in, in what she could bring. And one of the things she was very concerned about when she went there at a very, very early stage was child marriage. Yeah, I mean, she was very aware when she was teaching school that, you know, children as young as, as 10, I mean, she, you know, she writes a lot about it and she, she began to speak to the parents of the children in the initial stages to try and keep them in the school system. And then, and then we're talking about girls here exclusively. Oh yes, yeah. yes, yes. And 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 so what? What she found was that you know how was she going to tackle these major issues that were like so much larger than just a locality? So what she then went is is she went the route of looking at education as a way of of making a network of a sisterhood is how she described it. And one of the things that's really important to remember when we look at the women who come to another country, Margaret was always communicating with Hannah G. Skeffington at home. In turn, they were involved in the International League of Peace and Freedom. They were talking to their counterparts in America. You know, you see even in her correspondence, you know, Alice Park goes to India and she, you know, she meets up with Margaret Cousins. So when we talk about a global community of women activists, I mean, it stretches really far. And then later on in her life, she ends up at the League of Nations. She ends up involved in, in organisations where she's speaking about India on that international stage. And she's also, you know, travelling to, you know, to Japan. She's gone, you know, she's in the Hawaiian Islands. She's across America. So she's always sort of spreading the message of what's happening in India and speaking on behalf of communities in places where she has access. Sometimes as an Irish woman and sometimes representing India. 
There's an interesting centenary here because uh, aside from her involvement in Ireland, where I would have first come across her, was when she, in 1923, is appointed as a magistrate. First female magistrate in India as part of the of the British colonial system. So, I mean, is that the reason why this is the year to to have a, a close-up of Margaret Cousins? Well, I suppose the, the, the beauty of the Manal 100 project has been that we have been leading on women exclusively in this period of the decade of centenaries. And I always think that it's interesting from Margaret's cousin's point of view that, you know, now Minister Martin, you know, who set up the Women's Caucus is the is the minister and, you know, you know, obviously supporting this project. And so what's fantastic about it is, is you get a close up look at various women. So we're making it based on the, the fact that she becomes this non-Indian woman magistrate um, in 1923, which is exceptional. But it's also a way to look back and look forward, if you know what I mean. So, you know, it gives us an opportunity then to look again at where what became of the women of the suffrage movement. Because, you know, so often people say, well, why weren't they elected to the Doyle, mm. for example? Margaret took her place on the bench of Sidaped, the court of Madras, on the 19th of February, 1923. And she talked about it as a new beginning in the administration of British India, obviously, before India got independence. And when she talked about it in her book... And she talked about the feeling that she had. And, you know, you'd expect that she'd say like she she was full of joy and she was proud and all of that. And then she described her feeling as loneliness, being the only woman in, in a vast country. And all of a sudden, you know, have this image of her as, you know, that she's the one who's on that bench doing that. And then she said that as soon as other women became appointed, she said that an age old inhibition on the activities of women in the service of the country was broken, which I thought was a really lovely way of expressing that. Um, but, you know, one of the other things I think, you know, we talk about her travelling vast distances. You know, she was she she literally was the original globetrotter. And, uh, you know, even think about India and you look at the map of India and, you, you know, and you're seeing the distances and then, you know, put it back 100 years. And I was asking, you know, about whether or not, you know, she would have travelled by train and they go, no, in some districts they, they that she wouldn't. It would have been, you know, horse and cart or, you know, very basic transportation between rural outposts, as it were. In 1927, then, she becomes involved in something called the All India Women's Conference, which is an organisation that apparently exists to this day. What was her involvement with that organisation? What was the aim of that organisation? Well, it started out of the education piece. I mean, she, she put out, a, a, you know, a, an appeal to all of these women in, across India, like 22 different people she sent out you know, her message to about an appeal to Indian women about the the issue of education. And she said she was surprised at the response that she got. And she was the sort of the the conduit, the person who did, you know, got wires and letters from all these different places. And so began at first, it was called the all, the organisation in um, what is Chennai today was the all India Women's Association, which still exists. And what's really incredible about this network that still exists today is that, you know, they provide women to go along to police stations to assist women who are giving reports to the police. They have, you know, women involved in in craft. They have education. They have teaching services. And so what they do is exactly what Margaret wanted all of those years ago and that's continued on and, you know, the banner across the, the you know, the entrance, you know, her, her photograph is there along with all these in, Indian women. So, so that's in, in Chennai 
And this wouldn't have been possible. This film, we worked with the Department of Foreign Affairs and it's interesting to talk about the sort of the nature of the involvement, let's say, with St. Bridget's Day and, and, you know, in terms of how we're now looking again at the role of women. And, you know, you wouldn't be able to do and tell the story if it hadn't been for somebody on the ground going and collecting this information. It's almost like, you know, when Americans come and they want to research and you have to go to the local townland, you know, to be able to unpick the story and then to find their archive. And, and Padder, who's based in, in, in New Delhi, travelled to Chennai for us and he, he was on the ground. And so that's what you're seeing. That's the lovely layering in this film and the uniqueness of it and the original research. And, and so, you know, what was important as well is that later then that grew into the organisation that people may be more familiar with, which is the All India Women's Conference, which ended up, you know, rotating to all these different places. Now, Margaret herself was president by 1937, but it was led out by in Indian women from all the different, you know, areas. And, and that, began, that happened 10 years later in 1927, when she had seen the network and the importance of that organisation. So both organisations exist today. And one of the wonderful people that we have in the film who really is able to articulate, I suppose, a love for Margaret Cousins, if you could describe it like that. She speaks about them as if she knows them herself and Jim. Um, so she's wonderful. And uh, that's Sheila Carpery. And uh, she is just, uh, she's now currently in a role. It's a voluntary role. It's all the the people that work in the All India Women's Conference are volunteers. And she says that, they, that they're always taken the, you know, with the idea that Margaret is a foreigner, but she says we don't see her as a foreigner because she became one of us. And we have to remember that she lived there for 40 years. I mean, so she was able to negotiate through different communities and different cultures in order to achieve what she needed to achieve. And sometimes when you read that in a book, it doesn't seem... Uh, you know, it seems like a statement rather than something that actually happened. And to see the, the footage of what's happening today, 100 years on, those and then her beliefs, which are, you know, empowerment and equality continue today. So in, in the campus in New Delhi, you see the women's hostel. You see, the, you know, the, the, the building... Um, Sarjuni Naiji was one of the women who was one of the presidents and, and, you know, her lecture hall is there. And it just makes you very proud of, I suppose you, we can claim her as an Irish woman, and, uh, it, but, but they're very proud of her too in India. And you can see that very clearly. As you said, one of the interesting things in the film is when you go into the headquarters, I think, of the All India Women's Conference, they have mm. this wall of fame and there she is, the photograph of, of, of an Irish woman, of, of Greta Cousins, right, right in the middle of mm, it. Yeah. Um, now, she never, uh, uh, and I'm saying this in the most positive possible way, she never lost her ability to be a troublemaker because when it came to <laughs> the campaign for, uh, for, for, for independence in India, she becomes involved in that. She's back in jail again. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that is that she set out to go to jail in that she knew that they were prohibited from speaking publicly. She had returned from a, a tour of America. And this is back to the relationship between herself and James as well. She had been separated from him. He, had, he was, you know, he was now involved in, you know, the arts of India and he was, you know, still lecturing and doing, as they would say, his own thing. And so they're communicating. We don't have the letters or to document this, but you, but you know that she that she's made a deliberate decision to go into prison. She knows that she's going to get international coverage because she's just come from America, and you know, you know, they're talking about it over there, and you know, it obviously reaches the papers here. And and then when she goes into prison, she does exactly what what all of the other women had done in prison, which is she sets up education within the prison, and she's campaigning and and speaking to other people about what she's witnessed from the inside. So she's, as I said, anywhere she goes, she's of influence. So. 
she knew what she was about. She was an Indian nationalist. She was an Irish nationalist. She did come back to Ireland, unlike a lot of people who who emigrate, back in 1927 and didn't particularly like, and who can blame her, what she saw. She kept in touch with Ireland, not 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 quite at the end of her life because her her, her last sort of ten years where she was ill and you don't have a, a body of documentation obviously from that time. But yeah, she did. She kept in touch with what was happening, and when they came back, I mean, you you know, you can imagine like they left in thirteen, so we've just been commemorating that ten years and. Dublin was nearly unrecognisable. She'd gone in the, the 1890s in that wonderful milieu of the Celtic revival and what the excitement and all of the... Now, now sometimes you come back and you're now, beyond, you know, middle-aged and, and youth and everything's a little bit tarnished. And, you know, sometimes people say that even when they return, that, you know, they never go back to the Ireland they've been in. But for them, they were very concerned about what was happening. And this is back to the, what happens in the League of Nations. She goes to the League of Nations representing Ireland Ireland in, you know, attending disarmament conferences and then, you know, coming back and writing back to her, we presume her, you know, friends in Ireland about what she's witnessing, what she's seeing on the world stage. So we're, we're back again to a group of women who were always working towards peace. I mean, she was involved in militant, being militaristic, but she valued peaceful, democratic people being politicised in order to help, you know, people's conditions and all levels of society. And I think that while we know that she used militant methods, I think ultimately she was for a stable and functioning society. And in some ways, I suppose, you know, in our in our film, we, we wanted to highlight that the causes that she fought for and, you know, are still being looked at by not only, I suppose, Ireland in, in, in their official capacity, but also in these voluntary organisations in India. She spent more than half of her lifetime in India. How she remembered, she hardly remembered here, unfortunately, how she remembered in India. Oh, no, she is remembered in India. I suppose, again, you have the same thing. I mean, you know, we'll go back to what you said at the beginning to me and you refer to as Greta Cousins and we would have a shorthand at times and even when I'm listening to you on the radio at home, you know, have this sense that we know their friendship groups, we know that material inside out and, and sometimes you assume that people know about somebody just because you do and I think that, that we have seen a, a much more of a focus on this but I suppose I go back to the same thing again is that we wouldn't be making this film if she didn't have a significant presence in India, if she she hadn't been remembered. And when we set out to look at this story, if you could look at what was on the Internet before and then compare it to the film, you can see the, the vast amount of sort of original research. And, and what they were very happy about, both in Chennai and in New Delhi, was that they were showing their, their own library, the Margaret Cousins Library in this organisation. And I just hope that there's going to be a, a stream of Irish people who'll go and use the library and, and do some more research on the back of this. I said we'd come back to the mm. music, uh, to her involvement in the writing of the Indian National Anthem. That's something that's always fascinated me about mm. her, that it was an Irish woman. Or was it? I mean, what, what, what is the story there? Because there are, different, there are different stories about her involvement in that process. If you're researching on the internet, you can see that there's a, there's a sort of conflict. Some places you'll see that she composed the piece. Other people said that she preserved the tune. And so what I figured the story was that, that Tagore was with the cousins. This is the great Indian poet, Rabindrath Tagore. So you're suggesting mm-hmm. that she may have been a, a kind of a, of a bunting figure. She may have been somebody who preserved an existing tune rather than somebody who composed a tune which went on to become the anthem. 
Well, what people are saying is that that it was a set of verses, that it would have remained a set of verses. He was in giving a presentation, you know, obviously a musical evening. She herself had had studied music composition, yeah. so she may have had a hand in that. Anyway, yeah. the short film is called Margaret Cousins of Ireland and India. She is an absolutely fascinating character and, and, and well done. And I'm delighted that somebody has has highlighted her. Uh, on this very, very interesting centenary. You can find it online now at manaw100.ie and it's presented by my guest, Dr Sinead McCool. Sinead, many thanks for joining us. Thank you, Miles, and thank you for having me. After the break, I'll be joined by Commandant Daniel Iotis, whose new book tells the story of Ireland's military archives. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. We're now approaching the end of Ireland's decade of centenaries. Among the many institutions that have played a part in those centenary events, the military archives has been especially prominent. The military archives are custodians of one of the state's flagship projects, the Military Service Pensions Collection, as well as the Bureau of Military History, 1913 to 1921, the Collins Papers, the 1922 Army Census, early Department of Defence records and much, much more. While many people know about and indeed have used these collections, few know the history of the military archives as an institution. That is now being corrected, thankfully. I'm joined by Commandant Daniel Iotis, Director of the Military Archives and author of A New History of Those Archives. Daniel, you're very welcome back to The History Show. Thanks very much, Miles. Great um, to be here. Tell us a little bit. Uh, uh, I mean, I was fascinated reading in the introduction, for example, uh, about your own path to becoming Director of the Military Archives. And I want you to talk a little bit about that because it was seen in career terms in the army as something of a purgatory posting, wasn't it? It was, yeah. As I say in the introduction, it was, it was kind of a humorous thing that we have that Steve McGowan, my predecessor, was known as the guy who'd opted out of his career for a long time when he went to the military archives first. It was, and I think the reason for that, it goes right back to the initial establishment of the archives, that it was something that was dealt with on an ad hoc basis. It was The importance of it was kind of understood, but when something more important came along, the custodians and the people in charge were, were tasked elsewhere. My journey, how I ended up there, um, was by chance, more so than anything else. Uh, I joined the army in 2002, commissioned in 2004. Between 2004 and 2015, I served in various posts at home and overseas, Kosovo, Lebanon, a few other places around around Ireland. Then in 2015, to be quite honest, I was looking for, I was looking for a bit of a change. I suppose it was a bit short-sighted that I was looking outside, but you know, somebody said to me, gave me good advice and said, look, have a look, you know, within the organisation. And that's one thing I will say about the Defence Forces. It's great for lateral movement. And quite, I suppose, coincidentally or, or serendipitously, an advertisement went up for staff officer, which is deputy director at the military archives. I said, you know what, I'll, I'll give that a pop. And uh, I got it. I ended up at the military archives from, I think it was May 2015. I started Later that year in September, I undertook the Masters in Archives and Records Management, returned in 2016 after the course, took over as Deputy Director 2017, Stephen McCone, 
moved on. He moved on to the cadet school, so he certainly hadn't um, opted Destroyed out of his career. His career. He's, <laughs> he's onward and upward. I think he's um, he'll be promoted lieutenant colonel soon, actually. So he's doing really well, and I've been there since. But you've also been there at a time, a very, very interesting time for the archives, a time when, you know, suddenly everybody in Ireland is aware of the archives and so many uh, hundreds, thousands of people would have actually used the facilities of the archives online. So good time to, to write a book about the archives, but you didn't want it to be a reference book on how to use the Bureau of Military History Collection, how to use the, the, the Military Services Pension Collection. This is the, a narrative. This is how the archives developed to the point where they are today, isn't it? It is. Um, I suppose the book itself, it was a, I suppose a labour of love, really. I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but that's what it was. Um, I don't consider myself a historian, and it's something as an archivist, I'm always very keen to delineate and advocate for our profession because very much for a long time within the Defence Forces, and I think it still is to an extent, and even in wider society, there's this conflation of the archivist and the historian. We're not the same things. We're separate separate professions, even though kind of, uh, you know, so One is dependent on the other. It is, yeah, and it's a reciprocal thing. And it's not even so much as, you know, in the past, the archivist was seen as, you know, the, the handmaiden to historians, to use one quote, or the, the hewers of wood and drawers of water. So it is very much, I suppose, two, two separate. I suppose it's a bit more maybe symbiotic is the, the word you'd use. But um, no, I wanted to tell the story of the institution. And I like to write. I suppose I consider myself more a writer than a historian. And to tell this story, I use the medium of, you know, historical sources. But I also enjoy writing articles and, and you know, commentary pieces and essays and things like that as well. And I'm publishing them around the place. But first of all, I wanted to tell this story because what I noticed as soon as I got to the military archives was first of all the passion of the people involved who drove this thing forward, but also how far back that history went. And it goes all the way back to 1924 to MJ Costello. I suppose a precursor to it was the work of Pierce Beasley. So really, I suppose what I wanted to do was write the story of the institution and the people who made it what it was. At the same time, I wanted to write something that would appeal to my profession as well, to archivists. So while I suppose on the main level, this is a story and it's an interesting, well, I think it's an interesting story anyway. This is also something that professional archivists can look at with their archival hat on and they can say, oh, this is what the military archives was doing in the 1920s. And they can say, yes, well, you know, with wider archival mm. literature, we know that this was a time when, you know, archival collections were driven by future historical anticipated trends because it was it was not a given yeah. that the archive was going to survive there are certain there are discontinuities in in this story which we will will mm. come to as we as we go through it um you mentioned beasley start start with with beasley and his involvement beasley would be would have been one of the great propagandists of the of the war of independence period and then uh, and then subsequently so how does he get involved in the archives what does he do there yeah, so the seeds were really planted by Pierce Beasley, who, of course, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will know, had been director of publicity in the, in the IRA and then also in the, the National Army. So his close friend and comrade, uh, Michael Collins, is killed in August 1922. And soon afterwards, Beasley is appointed to write the official biography. As part of this, as part of his research and his project, he got the assistance of a Captain J.J. Burke. And as part of the research and the work they were doing, Burke was collecting records from the Civil War period. Now, after the Civil War, Beasley is still working away in the book. He writes to the Chief of Staff and asks for the establishment of a temporary war records office so he could consolidate all this work and make it available for the future. And he had the foresight to tell the Chief of Staff that the reason for this was, you know, to document the history of, 
Ogling and Heron from the volunteers through the War of Independence to the Civil War to the present time as it was then. Unfortunately, because of the huge demobilisation that was going on post-Civil War, the Chief of Staff you know, couldn't sanction it. Beasley was disappointed, of course. He, he kind of felt that this was kind of a waste of all the work he and Burke had been doing. He retired from the army, got his pension, went off and he finished writing his biography of Collins by himself. But his, his war records office didn't come to anything. It was 1924, though, that um, you know there was still a requirement for this kind of facility within the organisation. And this was very much driven by the 1923 Army Pensions Act and the 1924 Military Service Pensions Act, which provided for pensions for people who'd served during the revolutionary period and compensation for injuries and for dependents and, and that as well. So because of this, there was a need to identify and verify pre-true service. And how do you do that with something that was a guerrilla organisation, which doesn't keep, for obvious reasons, in-depth records of, of their membership and what they're doing? So the military archives was established by another revolutionary veteran, somebody who'd served under Pierce Beasley, actually, MJ Costello. It was established as part of the intelligence branch because Costello was director of intelligence at that time and they were also responsible for records within the organisation. So he tasked a Captain Alphonsus Blake and a civilian clerk called Thomas Galvin with looking after this archive section. It also kind of looked after a parallel uh, responsibility at the same time and that was kind of collecting material that would, again, as, P- as Beasley identified, which would document the history and the evolution of the army from its revolutionary beginnings up until the early 1920s as well. And this, I suppose, was due to the fact that one of the big collections they had at the time was the Khomeini Papers, which were found in a building in, in GHQ there at, at Park Gate Street. Um, they also had the Civil War records they'd inherited from Beasley as well. Now, we talked about discontinuities. Mm. One of those is a very active uh, discontinuity, and that's something uh, that happens in 1932 called the Burn Order. That sounds pretty ominous. Mm. Explain that to me. Yeah, so I suppose from 26, when when Blake and Galvin had retired from the army, the, Ar- the Yarkers was just left to kind of operate under its own steam, and it was kind of more or less neglected, to be honest. Throughout this time, the Chief of Staff was petitioning the Cumann government for an official establishment of the military archives to have it officially recognised as a state institution. It never came. And that was then, I suppose, bookended with the tragic event of the Bourne Order of 1932. So as Cumann were coming out of power and they knew Fianna Fáil, their, their previous civil war adversaries, were coming to take over power, Desmond Fitzgerald, the Minister for Defence, issued the Bourne Order, which ordered the destruction by fire of records concerning you know, intelligence reports, secret service vouchers, details of executions, firing parties and that from the Civil War period as well. Massive amount of very valuable documentation destroyed by fire. Uh, Lee Marcher, who was the Director of Intelligence at the time, did attempt over the couple of days he had between the order being issued and it being executed to catalogue as many of the records as possible. From a very practical sense, you need that to keep your, your records management system working. But unfortunately, he didn't have enough time. And the result is that you know, one of the most, I suppose, debated and contested areas of Ireland's history, even today, you know, civil war executions, we don't have records for. We've lost a lot of very valuable records. So not long, I mean, that's horrendous, but not long after the burn order, there was an attempt to create something called the Anglo-Irish Conflict Mm. Project, which was a precursor to future initiatives. It sounds like a sort of a, a, Mm. a, a swaddling closed version of the Bureau of Military History. Tell me briefly about that project. So 1932, Fianna Fáil come to power and you see a kind of, I suppose, a broader interest and acknowledgement of the need to start documenting the history of the revolutionary period during that time. So 1933, 
Colonel A.V. O'Carroll, Eamon Vincent O'Carroll, who had been a commander in the 5th Northern Division during the War of Independence. He instigates the Anglo-Irish Conflict Project. What this aimed to do was gather testimonies from a very specific set of people. They were serving officers with pre-truce experience. Now, this had the endorsement not only of the Chief of Staff, but also of Eamon de Valera as President of the Executive Council of Dáil Éireann. He was assisted by his captain, later Commandant, later Lieutenant Colonel Niall Charles Harrington, who's also famous as a historian and author and broadcaster himself. However, the people he wrote to were very reluctant to put down on paper their experiences. And I suppose this can really be put down to the fact that it was still, you know, very close. It was definitely in living memory, but it was still a little bit raw. You didn't have that distance of time that you had with the Bureau of Military History in the mid to late 40s into the 50s as well. But... um. It was an attempt. It reflected wider cultural trends within the country as well. But also I think it reflects a kind of a certain bias that archives had at that time where it was only serving officers, not even listed personnel, serving officers with pre-truce experience. So in one way, it was progressive, you know, within the context of its time. But I suppose within the broader context, it was, you know, we can see certain biases looking back as archivists. Yeah, probably a, a bit early. And in the same way, mm. the Bureau of Military History comes just in time before memories mm. start to fade as well. Just we, about, we, yeah. We'll come to that. Um, th- the period from the late 30s to the mid-70s was a, a time of stagnation for the archives, even though you had some pretty impressive figures who were involved. J.J. O'Connell, Ginger O'Connell, uh, a you know, very, very senior figure in the War of Independence and particularly in the Civil War. So what happened to the archive during those decades? So 1935, we see the first official appointment of an officer in charge of the military archives. So, um, you know, without going into too much detail, within the military, every appointment, every job has a rank marked beside it. And if the appointment doesn't exist, you know, it, it doesn't exist. So this was the first time that on the official establishment, officer in charge, military archives existed. And the man who filled the role was Colonel J.J. Ginger O'Connell. O'Connell, of course, had um, a lot of, of, you know, he really had great Republican credentials, director of training, at one time assistant chief of staff in GHQ of the, the IRA. Kidnapped before the burning of the forecourts. He was. He was <laughs> um, deputy chief of staff at that stage in the National Army. His kidnapping more or less precipitated the shelling of the four courts. Demoted twice then after the civil war and, and the demobilisation. He always expected to be promoted again and he was quite somewhat bitter about this. From well, Not bitter, but he was he did find it very unfair. Um, but look, I suppose the army's loss is the archives gain and he did feel that colonel's appointment as officer in charge of the military archives. The records from that time really show him as a dynamic, disciplined, talented character as well who really more or less single-handedly kind of drove the archives to becoming you know, something that was a bit more engaged with the wider cultural, historical milieu within the country as well. So the, it really bloomed for the first time with O'Connell coming in as the first officer in charge. Unfortunately, 1939, World War II breaks out, the emergency declared in Ireland. O'Connell is posted, his, his skills are required elsewhere. So ostensibly he's looking after the archives, but he doesn't have the time to do it full time. 1944 then, he passes away quite unexpectedly. It was really kind of left to wither on the vine. And then in 1959, following a reorganisation of the Defence Forces, which happens every couple of years, the archives was just completely removed from the establishment of the Defence Forces. Then during the 1970s, fortunately, a figure emerges who becomes, I think, synonymous synonymous with the, the military archives, and that's Commandant Peter Young. Tell us about his activities and his role in getting the military archives re-established. 
I suppose if I could sum it up, it's the, the military archives as it is today, as it's regarded coming out of the decade of centenaries and everything that's contributed, that would not be there if it was not for Peter Young. Peter was a captain assistant press officer in Army Intelligence Branch in the late 1970s. When he got to Intelligence Branch, he realised that there was, there had been an archives in the past and the records were there. I suppose I'd consider it archives with a lowercase a. And he petitioned and fought to have the military archives re-established. And this was a combination of both his ability and his personality that this did come about. Actually, one of the things that really speaks to his dedication for me, something I found in, the, in researching the book, was he had served a six-month tour in Unifil headquarters uh, in Lebanon. And on return, he was offered a position, a two-year position as assistant press officer to Timur Goxel which he refused and he said, you know, I, I really appreciate the offer, but the, the last review for you know, the, the re-establishment of the archives is in progress at the moment. I want to be there to see it home. Peter remained as the officer in charge of the archives from its re-establishment in 1982 until his unfortunate timely death in 1999, aged only 49. So give me an example of his legacy, of, of what he was able to, uh, to actually do in cooperation, uh, as it happens with, uh, with other archivists, with uh, one, probably the best-known archivist mm-hmm. in the country, uh, Katrina Crow. So the military archives is re-established in 1982. 1986, the country has its first piece of archival legislation that it's had since independence, the National Archives Act 1986. And then 1990, the military archives is designated a place of deposit under Section 14 of that Act. And what that means is since 1990, we have been the de facto National Archives as far as not only the Defence Forces, the Army, Naval Service, Air Corps, but also the Department of Defence are concerned. And that was a huge, I suppose, boost and a vote of confidence to the military archives. So the Department of Defence's files don't go to the National Archive, they go to you? They do. The legal obligation is for those archives to come to us. Mm. So tell me about so, his successor, Peter Young's successor, Victor Lang. Uh, so he, he, he's there up until, up, up until 2012. Tell me what, what he managed to achieve. Well, Victor took over just, uh, as soon as Peter passed away. Um, it was 99 that um, Peter and Katrina Crow petitioned to have the Bureau of Military History Records released from government custody into the public domain and the, the military archives was designated as the place of deposit for those records as well so that's why the I suppose the designation as place of deposit ties into what he achieved with Katrina Crow there he passes away before only two weeks after the announcement that the records are going to be released and come to the military archives so he never actually got to see this come to fruition unfortunately at that stage the military archives could very well have declined as it had several times in the past. However, Victor Lang, who had been his deputy since the mid-80s, he was there for, for a long time, he took over and Victor really saw to it that the archives survived. If Victor had not been there, there would be no archives as it is today either. So Peter is responsible for it coming back, but Victor is responsible for its survival. Um, I suppose one of the most interesting stories from my research was when there were plans in place to try and find a location for the military archives. One place that was suggested and that was being looked at seriously was the Collins Barracks site, which had been evacuated by the military in the late 90s and the National Museum of Ireland were to, to move in. So the idea was the military archives could be co-located there. An interdepartmental committee was established to look at this. However, as the historical records show, I think it was around 2004, 2005, there had been a meeting outside of the committee between it was the Secretary General of Defence and his counterpart in Culture and Heritage that proposed merging the military archives with the national archives. So what this would have done was basically removed the place of deposit status and basically, I suppose, dissolved the military archives, which had been, you know, it was hard fought to get it re-established. So Victor Lang then goes back 
to the chief of staff and reports, listen, we need to have somewhere for the military archives within our own real estate, somewhere we can be proud of. And the, the site that Victor suggested was the hospital block from the 1840s in Cattlebrew Barracks, which did in 2016 become the new site of the military archives reading room. So tremendous foresight and tremendous advocacy as well from Victor. Uh, and it is something you can be proud of. It's a, a fabulous, it's a wonderful reading room and a great facility. But I suppose to most people, the military archives is about what they can sit down and what they can see on their on their laptop mm. or their home computer. Uh, that's It's been a great boon of the period of commemoration, the centenary, the decade of centenaries, the digitisation project, mm. hasn't it? It has been. I mean, it's... It, it's always an interesting one with digitisation and I'm often asked and Cecile Shemin, the project manager of the Military Service Pensions Collection, we're often asked, you know, is everything going to be digitised? Digitisation in itself is, is an expensive and a, a time-consuming process, as you can see from the, the Military Service Pensions Collection itself. But it has, it's given accessibility to the pension records and it's also given accessibility to the Bureau of Military History Records. So, um, yeah, look, we have a massive, massive amount of resources available on our website. But then again, that is only a fraction of what we have in our repository. And that brings me to the future. This is a book about the past, mm. but to the future and to the, the notion of a repository. Are there challenges there? Uh, are, you, are you filling up? We actually are probably quite surprising to people. They may have heard the statistic that we have I think, approximately 21 linear kilometres of shelving in our repository. However, we've been so successful in meeting the obligations on us to consolidate records within the Defence Forces and the Department of Defence that have been outstanding because of the lack of a a proper purpose-built facility that we estimate now that within three to five years, probably closer to three to five, we will be at 90 to 95% capacity in terms of physical storage. So the next thing we need to address is the building of some kind of a I suppose, an off-site storage area specifically for storage to give us, you know, future proof for the next 50 years or so. Because I suppose the vast bulk of records have been and will be consolidated within the next couple of years. So it's now future-proofing that for the years to come. We can't let this be a thing where, you know, we have this great success during the decade of centenaries and it's allowed to Mm. kind of ebb, ebb away, you know, as we kind of drift out of it as well. We need to keep the momentum up. And one of the messages of the book is that Mm. the military archive over a period of, of, you know, the guts of 100 years has waxed and waned. It has. We don't want to see it waning again. Daniel, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The History Show this evening. The book is called The Military Archives, A History and it's published by Eastwood Books. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Damien Chanel's on sound and our researcher Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.